Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another opportunity that you have given us to come into this place, place and to worship you in word and sacrament. We ask that you would be with us and plant the words of your text, your gospel, deep within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> One of America's greatest living authors died on Tuesday. Maybe, maybe you know the name Cormac McCarthy. Maybe you don't. Either way, it's fine. But he wrote a book called uh, All the Pretty Horses, which was turned into a Matt Damon movie a few years ago. He wrote the books upon which No Country for Old Men and The Road, both successful movies, were based. I remember back in my Beeson days, actually, I was watching The Road with one of my friends, Ben, and he kept surreptitiously disappearing under his Snuggie throughout the entire movie. It was terrifying, but it wasn't a horror movie. It was unsettling. It wasn't scary, exactly. It tells the story of a father and son wandering through America after the fall of civilization. It's gray, and it's ashy, and it's cold. Any other traveler they meet on the road is a source of danger, a threat to their well-being, their very existence. It, it did what Cormac McCarthy did so well. He laid bare the world that we live in that we would prefer not to see, with all of its brokenness and violence and death. These are not the books of bedtime stories. In his words, we live like hunted animals, borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. You could describe the world of his novels as very Old Testament in a particular way. The world McCarthy wrote about is the world described by the scriptures. It's a world that's marked by violence and death because it's fallen. It's torn itself away from its creator. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve get ejected from Eden, the world grows more and more and more violent. Cain kills Abel, Lamech kills anybody he wants, and God has to wipe up the whole mess with the flood. But he still saves a remnant, a small group who can continue his mission to the world on his behalf. But as soon as they step back on dry land, they fall again and again. But eventually the people get their act together. Humans start working together. They start working together maybe a little too well, we might say, because then they start trying to build a tower to woo the gods to come down and bless them and make a name great for themselves. See, even when humans work together, sometimes that just means we're more efficiently evil. So God has to crush this tower and confuse their language. Y'all, things are not going well. The fallen world is a violent place. Oh, but that was a long time ago, right? Adam and Eve, they were naked. But if I tried that at my workplace, I'm going to lose my 401k and probably go to jail. Maybe I'm just being overly dramatic with all this, right? A while back, I read an article in The Atlantic that talked about something called social trust. The stats painted a really bleak portrait of trust in our society. The basic premise of the idea was that there has been a steady increase in the distrust we feel towards people in the last 25 years. For better or worse, for good reasons or for not good reasons, we are distrustful more so than 20, we were 25 years ago. So maybe a world where we see every other person we encounter as a threat isn't too far stretched, is it? Against this backdrop, God made Abraham a promise. He promised that one day the people would be, his people would be a blessing to this dark and cold and fallen world. So God acted on this promise to Abraham when his descendants were slaves in Egypt. He comes in and as a warrior frees his people from Egypt, burying Pharaoh beneath the waves. In our Old Testament reading for this morning, Exodus 19, we see God adopt Israel as his own treasured possession, his own people. But here we discover how God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. How is it that his seed would become a blessing to the whole world by becoming to the Lord a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? 
See, God looked down into our broken world and saw the disorder and the chaos that had erupted, and he adopted a nation as his own. As a kingdom of priests, this nation was supposed to represent God to the world, shining light into all those darkened places. And to this end, God gave them the law so that they might know what he expected. But God's people, of course, did not keep God's law. So instead of representing the Lord to the nations, they began worshiping foreign gods and idols. Good leaders would come up for a while, and the prophets would call the people back to repentance, and that would last for a few years. But then some threat would arise, and the people would forget. Over and over again, we saw this process. They failed because their fallen nature, much like our fallen nature, was not capable of keeping the law. So in Ezekiel, God rebukes the leaders of Israel. He says, I set you up as shepherds over the people, and what have you done? You cut their throats. You, sh- you slit the throats of the sheep you were supposed to protect. You sold its wool, and then you ate all of the meat and the fat for yourself. And so Yahweh, the Lord, says, the people were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. See, Israel was supposed to be God's light into our world, and now they're just wandering in the dark like the rest of us. Borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. But in the Gospels, we get word that God is once again on the move, and we meet Zechariah, a priest in the temple who's just had a son named John the Baptist. And he announces this prophecy, that God is giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, guiding our feet into the way of peace. John is announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. And the beginning of our Gospel reading for this morning is a, it's a recap of sorts. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. See, Jesus is going from place to place to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. One commentator described Jesus' ministry in a way I found really helpful. He said it's a one, it is a ministry of word and work together. He announces the message of salvation by grace and the need to repent from sin. He heals the sick and the lame. He's restoring people, body and soul. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus is doing what God promised he himself would do. Jesus is stepping into the role that God has reserved for himself, that of the great shepherd of God's people. This would, of course, be blasphemous if Jesus didn't share God's own nature. But we learn something really interesting here from this text— The mission of God's kingdom is motivated by God's heart for people. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, I've yet to get to go to the Holy Land. At least, not yet. I know uh, Christ the King is going on a church trip soon to the Holy Land. I'd love to walk where Christ did climb the Mount of Olives, and swim in the Sea of Galilee. I've never been to the Holy Land, but you know what? Jesus has never been to Hoover. Our Lord never stepped foot in Jefferson County during his earthly ministry, and there is, friends, scant evidence that he ever made it to North Shelby either. But strangely enough, I have heard the announcement of his kingdom. That's because when Christ looked out and saw that crowd that day, he saw me standing there too. When Jesus saw the crowd that was harassed and helpless, weary like sheep without a shepherd, he saw you. 
And his response was to pray that God would raise up laborers so that his kingdom could advance to our day and beyond. Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus has been teaching and healing the sick. He's been ministering in word and work. But more than that, he's been teaching and instructing his disciples. See, this is teaching 101. Let's say you're teaching something, uh, something lovely, something exciting, something that warms the heart like diagramming sentences. First, the students—did I hear some laughter there? Okay, I'm going to let that go. First, the student watches you demonstrate this skill, and then you work with the student to do this skill together, and then they work independently, right? It's a process of teaching. The disciples have seen Jesus minister. They're about to minister alongside Jesus for a while, and then the keys to the kingdom will be theirs, so to speak, or maybe not, so to speak, depending on your ecclesiology. But what we see in our gospel passage is Jesus sending his disciples out on mission into the world, a ministry of work and word. Now, Matthew records the name of those 12 disciples to be sent out by Jesus, but he doesn't call them disciples in that context. As I was preparing, I was surprised to learn that this is the only solitary time Matthew uses the word apostle in his gospel. Entire gospel, this is the only place. Apostle is one of the first words you learn when you start taking a Greek class, because the Greek word is apostolos, from which we get our word clearly enough. It was a commonly used term for one who was sent with a message, very similar to our word like messenger or herald or even ambassador. An apostle is one who represents a king by delivering his message to a people. So Jesus calls these apostles to represent him to the lost sheep. He tells them to announce the kingdom and to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. Word and work. And so they continue to carry on the message, the mission Jesus has given them over the next few years. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, things have changed. They've reached the homework portion of the class because the teacher is not alongside of them in the same way he once was. It's time for them to carry on the mission of Christ in the world. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them and made them for that mission. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the birth of the church. God once again adopted for himself a people. Just as he'd done on Sinai, God has chosen for himself a people that we call the church. But this people is, of course, not from one country or one ethnicity. Instead, it's a race that is made up and comprised of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The church of Jesus Christ is that new covenant people, and every baptized believer is a citizen in this new kingdom. It was St. Peter, of course, who delivered the sermon on Pentecost, and it's from St. Peter that we learn that God's promises did not die on the vine. He didn't let the promises wither as the people wandered. In his epistle, St. Peter writes that, he says he's writing to the elect exiles, the people of God who are suffering for their faith in Christ. They're serving as Christ's messengers in various places, and they're suffering for it, and this includes people up to and including our own day. Even so, Peter says they and we need to stick it out and endure this testing because we've been given an essential role to play in God's redemption of the world. In chapter 2, St. Peter writes something that echoes. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our God is still in the business of lighting the world. 
And as his kingdom of priests, you and I are called to carry his mission of word and work to that world. It won't be easy. Our world is gray and ashy and cold, inhospitable to the gospel. But we carry the light into those darkened places. Our God has created for himself a people. The other side of this, of course, is that we get to have a people. Y'all, it's hard out there. I think we can agree on that. People are experiencing loneliness to levels that we have never quantified before. You name a problem in our society, and there's a pretty solid chance that social isolation is playing a significant role. But as St. Peter reminds us, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. In a world where the pandemic of loneliness goes unchecked, the church is a place where we find community with one another. My two favorite books by Cormac McCarthy both end with a similar image, but don't worry, there are no spoilers. As the father and son travel through this fallen world, the father tells the son that they have the fire inside of them, and they must keep the fire alive. In No Country for Old Men, one of the characters speaks of a dream in in which he was making a dangerous pass over a mountain on horseback. The wind and the snow were blowing, but as he was traveling, a man he knew rode by him without saying a word. And as he writes, he just rode on past, and he had this blanket wrapped around him and pulled up around his head when he rode past. And I seen he was carrying a fire and a horn the way people used to do. He says, in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead of me and that he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. See, that's the role that God has allowed you and me to play in this world. We are the people in whom God's fire burns to light our darkened world. We're we're the kingdom of priests who reflects the light of Christ into the world like a mirror. We do this by continuing his ministry of word and work. So when you share the gospel with someone, you're carrying the light of Christ. When you listen and don't look away from someone who's suffering, you're carrying the fire. When you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and lighten the burden of the widow and orphan, you're being the light of Christ in this world. Now, I can't remember if it was St. Athanasius or St. Aquinas who said, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And do not ask me to hide it under a bushel, please, and thank you. That part gets left out of the translation most of the time. But in a cold and lonely world, we carry Christ's fire forward. But we don't have to carry this flame forever. In the last day, when that dawn from on high has broken upon us, we will no longer walk in darkness. Revelation tells us that our journey will end when we enter into that heavenly city, the city that has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will give it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. But until then, until that day comes, we carry the fire walking together as one people, united in mission by the Holy Spirit for the expansion of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to call to himself a people. We thank you that you have given us a role to play in the redemption of the world, that you have given us by your grace the opportunity to join in your kingdom. We ask that you will help us to follow you evermore in this day and forever. Amen.